Welcome to Asset Protection Today with Attorney Bill Alexander on News Radio 680 WPTF. Good Saturday morning to you. Jason Kong here with Bill Alexander. Bill, how are you? Good morning. I'm doing fine. Hope you are. I'm doing wonderful, Bill. Excited to have another program here with you. And we were having a discussion uh, just before the program that uh, that I'm going through a little bit with uh, complications with families. And we're going to be talking about families and how that impacts estate planning because that can be a, a, a monkey wrench in the gears. Well, it certainly can. And uh, while we don't want to divulge too much, you know, obviously uh, your your dad and uh, uh, had a second marriage. That's right. And uh, children by each marriage. And that can complicate things. Now, your situation is a little thornier because of uh, situations, but your dad died uh, a number of years ago and did not leave a last will and testament. Right. Now, so when you don't have a will, the state has a will for you. <laughs> yes, okay? they do. And it's not the one maybe you want. <laughs> that That's exactly right. And the, the state's will is called intestate succession. Now, you know, the words don't make much difference one way or the other. And, of course, your dad died in Florida, so that, in essence, means that Florida law and their intestate succession laws uh, determine where your dad's property goes to. And, you know, there are an awful lot of folks, and I think you were one of them, who assume that when a person dies, whether there's a will or not, uh, unless the will says something different, everything goes to the spouse, whether it's a first spouse, second spouse, third spouse, fourth spouse, whatever. And that's just not true. In fact, uh, in, in, uh, now, it is determined by state law, and uh, the uh, legislature in North Carolina actually changed a few years ago longstanding law as to how much a successive spouse, by second I mean second, third, fourth <laughs> spouse, uh, uh, gets. And uh, the determination in North Carolina at this point is based on how many years that marriage lasts um, uh, before the death of one of the two spouses. Now, but most states do not have a law like that, uh, and in fact, uh, most uh, states uh, still – I mean, they have some formula where the property is split among the spouse and the children in one form or another. And that's basically the way – in test. In other words, they don't assume that it all goes to the spouse – and it does, uh, in fact, protect the children of the decedent. And that, that's pretty important. Now, uh, behind, that's if you do not have a will. So the bottom line is that if you want to control where your property goes at your death, then at a minimum – you have to have a last will and testament. And then if you have a valid last will and testament, then your will will determine who gets what and when. Um, and, and that's, you know, a really important concept for folks to understand. 
Um, so a last will and, and now one question that some or that some people are uh, or a myth that some people think is true is that if you don't have a will, you don't have probate. You don't have a state administration through the courts. Well, that's absolutely 100% wrong. Um, If you have a will or if you do not have a will, everything goes through probate and trusted – I mean, and estate administration upon your death. Now, there are ways to avoid probate, uh, and the biggest way is having a revocable trust agreement. That, in essence, takes everything uh, that's in the trust, that's funded into the trust prior to your death, is non-probate, doesn't go through the courthouse, remains totally private for your family, and in most cases is a stronger instrument, harder to break, than a, a will by as as it as it goes, so there are a lot of issues like that now. Um, but a will can be very important and very helpful. So um, I wanted to talk about several different um, circumstances, and it's just coincidental. I had all three of these circumstances in the past week. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So it makes it easy to talk about. It's right on the top of my head. Um, I, I have one where um, uh, she has three children, or actually four children. And for a number of years, uh, one of the four children had been totally estranged, had nothing to do with mom. And then um, over the last three, four years, two others, one who lives out west and one who lives um, – near Canada, but not anywhere nor, near North Carolina, um, two more of her children have just totally turned their back. No contact, no phone calls, no visits. It's basically have no interest in what's going on. And so um, she, she had a previous will that basically says, I'm leaving nothing to the one child who turned away from me years ago. And I said, well, has that improved? And, and she said, no, that hadn't changed at all. And, in fact, things have gotten worse because two more of my children have turned their backs on me and have no contact with me. Fortunately, I have one child who's been very caring and, and very helpful. So, in essence, um, in essence, she did a new will to basically said three of my four children get nothing, okay, which you can do. Your children are not entitled to receive a nickel from you when you die. You can leave all your property to the church. You can leave it all to your friends. You can uh, leave it to anybody you want to if you have a document that's strong enough to do that. Now, obviously, your children could be real upset about the fact that they might not get anything from you because children do eventually have expectations. Now, Truthfully, uh, this client has very little to fight over, but at the same time, that's not always the case. So what does that – does that – just because you have a will that says I leave a child out or I leave three children out, does that mean that that's what will happen at your death? No, because 
what what might happen in this case is the three estranged children could come back and say, "Oh no, uh, Mama didn't intend this." The good, the, you know, the the child that Mama considered the good child, the one who's been really there for her for everything. That child unduly influenced mom to turn away from us. She loved us, and we loved her, blah, blah, blah. But he unduly influenced her, and so we're going to dissent from her will and take this to court. Okay, so, you know, obviously in this particular case, that would be a very bad result. Um, This is where the lawyers get more than the family when there's a fight. Okay, so... And it all comes out of mom's uh, estate. So you want to avoid that. Now, North Carolina actually has something that can help uh, keep that from happening. What is it? Uh, it, It's uh, the ability to probate your will. Uh, That means take it to the courthouse and let them determine that your last will and testament is valid and acceptable and uh, it is, uh, in essence, uh, goes through probate. So, in essence, you go through probate while you're alive. Now, if you have a family situation where there is a likelihood or a real possibility of a descent, like when you basically said two or three of my children aren't going to get anything, then um, having a, a probate while you're alive uh, can solve your problem. Now, why do I say that? Well, when you die, people don't have any um, uh, issue with coming forth and complaining and and basically saying, I don't like what mom did and I'm going to challenge it. But in a, a probate while you're alive, they do have to get uh, notice. You know, it's called due process. Uh, of the fact that you're probating your will now, and guess what? They have to come forward while you're alive and look at you in the eye and say, Mama, you didn't intend to do this, uh, which is extremely hard to do because while you're alive, most kids are not going to mess with it or they realize that they don't have a shot at truly challenging the will because mom can say, no, no, no. I mean, you turned your way from me. You're not entitled to anything under North Carolina law, and I'm not leaving you a darn thing. So that's just uh, one example of a thing. So in North Carolina, if you have a situation like that, and truthfully, I wish nobody had a situation like that, but families can be complicated. Uh, and you do have situations where uh, children move off and they you know, they just go their own way, and they're not there for you anymore. And uh, while that's rare, it's not as rare as you would think. Um, and so that's one way to solve the problem. Um, of course, a trust agreement, and if there are more assets in this particular case, a trust agreement also is a good way, as opposed to a probate of a will, that uh, can make a huge difference as well. Yeah, that's a, a good point there. And man, you, you're exactly right that family can make things interesting when it, it comes to uh, property and estate planning. So we'll continue our conversation in just a bit. Stick around. You're listening to Asset Protection Today with Attorney Bill Alexander on News Radio 680 WPTF.
You're listening to Asset Protection Today with Attorney Bill Alexander on News Radio 680 WPTF. Jason Kong here with Bill Alexander, and we're talking about juggling estate planning when you have uh, specific family situations. Sometimes you can have a, a split family, as you describe, Bill, or uh, just a, a single person with no family. And uh, which direction should we head in now when it comes to estate planning? Well, I, I would like to go to another unusual circumstance and just uh, give folks uh, a concept of things that should be done, can be done. Uh, And it's an odd situation, but at the same time, there are a lot of folks out there that think there's nothing I can do. Now, I'm really talking about a single person who is alone. And by alone, I mean they're unmarried, you know, either by divorce or the death of their spouse. They have no children. They have no family. And they have no friends that they can trust enough to make decisions for them uh, in in a uh, capacity where uh, they have absolute trust that they would never be taken advantage of financially uh, or otherwise. And so, in essence, they're alone as it relates to taking care of themselves. Um, and it's like, what can they do? What happens? And I, I actually had a client like this this week as well. And it's a very difficult situation. A wonderful lady, 84 years old, still extremely independent, very lucid, uh, even has her own business. 84 years old, has her own business, and she also gets her Social Security and her pension. Um, But so she has not bad income, you know, enough to do things, uh, anything she wants to do. But she lives in a condo uh, on the third floor with no elevator, which means she's got steps to climb every day uh, up and down. And uh, the bottom line is for her, it's like, well, Good exercise. <laughs> okay. Uh, and then in this particular case, it was like, um, well, at your age, don't you think it would be uh, uh, wise to consider uh, moving to an independent living community where you would have a safety net 24-7 and, and life would be a little easier for you? You wouldn't have to prepare a uh, most of your meals, and you'd have somebody that come in. Well, I mean, that's when it was like, absolutely not. I have no interest in that whatsoever. And, <laughs> and so I like what I'm doing, and I believe in control. Don't misunderstand. I like folks to be in control. And one of the reasons I like independent living for seniors is the fact that it does give them safety, and it does um, – make life a little bit easier, um, uh, and they're still in control. I mean, you can live in independent living just like you could in a home, but some people don't like that lifestyle, and this clearly was where this lady was. It was like, only if I have no other choice uh, would this happen. And truthfully, for it didn't, you know, age really doesn't make a difference, and even though this person was 84, she was – uh, acting like a 65-year-old, and that's perfectly fine if you have the physical and mental capability to do that, which is gets rare for a lot of uh, folks at that age group, but not everybody. I know, 
you know, age is one of those things that it really doesn't have anything to do with how many years you've been on earth. It really has everything to do with good health and good mind and attitude. I mean, because I've had lots of clients who were in the late 80s and 90s that you would think they were 70 and just as spry and wonderful and and active as they can be. And then I've had others in their late 60s and early 70s that you would think they're just uh, old as the hills and one one foot in the grave. Uh, and, and a good, you know, sometimes it's because of their health. Sometimes it's because their uh, mental acuity is declining uh, a whole lot faster than anyone would anticipate. And other times it's just because of attitude. It's like, I'm old. I mean, all of us as we age, and I can attest to this, you're too young for this, Jason, but the bottom line is our bodies don't work as well as we age as it did years earlier. And, you know, and we notice the decline, unfortunately, and it's not all about hair loss. <laughs> <laughs> so it's uh, it's kind of thing where uh, th- th- things can get more difficult. But the bottom line is this lady – very independent, wanted to stay that way, but she definitely wanted to stay put. She had nobody to appoint as her agent, either for finances or for health care. So what are her options? Well, first of all, you should never appoint an agent for anything, health care or finances, that um, you you are not positive that you can trust them to do at every moment to do what's in your best interest. Now, fortunately, most of us have a spouse or a child or more than one child who fits that role, uh, that we know that they will look at our best interest if we can't make decisions for ourselves. But what do you do if there's nobody that you can turn to? Well, the first thing, particularly for someone in their mid-80s, to me, was healthcare decisions. You know, what if you're in on the operating table? Who's going to make, you know, critical decisions if you can't communicate what you want to the doctor? Um, or if you've had a major stroke and can't communicate or a major heart attack or whatever it is, you know, because there are lots and lots of circumstances for folks who think they're healthy, um, where circumstances change in a split second. So what I recommended, uh, and uh, I'm recommending this more and more, quite frankly, to families, but this is a person that doesn't have a family. And I said, look, you have no one to turn to, so you really should employ a care manager, you know, an independent care manager. They used to be called geriatric care managers, and they dropped the phrase geriatric. I think that scared people. I'm not sure. But the bottom line is these are clinical people with typically either social um, worker backgrounds or nursing backgrounds or some kind of a clinical uh, background to uh, where and, – and they've worked with um, older clients – uh, for many years and have a lot of experience in terms of uh, helping clients. Well, the bottom line was this. You know, most independent care managers in this uh, area charge somewhere between 110 to $125 an hour. 
But And this lady could afford that, and that's a whole lot less expensive than attorneys or accountants uh, <laughs> when it comes to things like that. But the key is this person is clinical. This person understands hospital speak, understands rehab speak, understands doctor speak, if you will, where most of us don't. And so uh, hiring somebody to come in and to evaluate you and to evaluate your home and make recommendations to you that will allow you to create a safer environment for you to stay put at home. You know, and sometimes that those are things like you need to put a handbar here and a handbar there and to take this carpet up uh, and, and so that uh, you, you have less likely to, to trip and fall, you know, those kind of things. It's declutter or do things, you know, things like that. But also an evaluation of your own personal situation um, in terms of your lucidity and any kind of mobility issues that you might have, things like that. And then once they've evaluated your situation and made recommendations that changes you could make to help yourself, then to have this person come back regularly, monthly, quarterly, uh, but regularly to where they get to know you over time. And if you like them and you think that they're responsible and helpful and on call and those kinds of things, because an independent care manager can go with you to the hospital. They can go, they can talk to your doctors on your behalf. They can go to rehab and argue to keep you in rehab and, and help you with discharge planning and help you get back home. So from my perspective, it's if you like this person and you learn to trust them, then you can appoint them as your health care agent, uh, and then you have an agent going forward. And you also have a, someone to check in with you um, on a periodic basis to see if things are still going as well as they, they were when you started. And um, that doesn't give you a financial agent, uh, but the bottom line is, you know, if you have no children and family, then if you're... Uh, well, I guess I need to come back. I've been talking for too long. So anyway, uh, when we come back, let me uh, talk about how you can deal with the financial side uh, if you can't make your own decisions. And then we can move on to some other quirky situations. Excellent. We'll do just that. Stick around. You're listening to Asset Protection Today with attorney Bill Alexander on News Radio 680 WPTF. News Radio 680 WPTF. You're listening to Asset Protection Today with attorney Bill Alexander. You can find more information about him at WGALaw.com. That's WGALaw.com. That's also a place where you can go to register for Bill's free seminar on Wednesday, August 8th. That's a great opportunity for you to learn and protect yourself from the uh, financial hardships associated with long-term care. But right now we're talking about estate planning and uh, some quirky family situations. And Bill, we were talking about folks who basically have no family and no trusted friends and what they can do to have a care agent. But now we're going to focus a little bit on the financial side of things and what these folks can do to help secure their, themselves financially. Well, I think the most important thing is what not to do as opposed to what gotcha. to do. And and of course, for a person who's alone in the world, um, 
with no one to trust, then the health care power of attorney uh, is important. And be, to be able to employ a professional that you get to know over time, not a physician. You know, the physician is the wrong choice uh, because a physician doesn't have time to to know you the way that you want them to know you to help make decisions. That's why the independent care manager is the is the appropriate choice for the healthcare situation. The doctors don't have enough time uh, to deal with those kind of issues, and typically the care managers do ten times better, and it makes a whole lot of difference. Plus, they're a whole lot less expensive too. So. What about the financial side? Because a lot of advisors will say, oh, you have to have a, f- a financial power of attorney, and they you know, normally do a general durable power of attorney. Now, I would be one to say that, but the next thing I say is only if you have a person that you can absolutely trust. Now, my lady who's alone basically is smart. She says, I don't trust anybody. And, and, and from my perspective, that included me. <laughs> okay? Because she was real clear about that. And, and, and so, uh, you know, I respect that. And, and it's okay. I have to earn someone's trust professionally. And, and that's, that's important. Uh, so uh, now, on the financial side, She's already answered the question. I have no one I can trust. Well, truthfully, when you're alone and you have no person that you truly want to leave your estate to, then the financial piece really doesn't matter like it does when it comes to preserving your property for your spouse or your children or grandchildren. So for her, uh, from my perspective, she's better off not, not having a financial agent than having a financial agent where uh, the person could take advantage of her. And uh, let me give you an example because I have had uh, clients in the past who, for instance, didn't have a, a child, but they had a very, very close friend. Now, if it's a long-term friendship where you do everything together, uh, sometimes people are, you know, have a close relationship, even though they may not live close together anymore with a cousin or a nephew or a niece or a family member. And, and, of course, uh, oftentimes that works. But let's say you don't have any of that, So, but you do have a close friend. And then the key is how close is that friendship? And also, does your friend have financial issues or are they well-to-do? You know, the, and, and I'll give you uh, a real example. Let's say that for me, I have two kids, but let's say, all right, they're not there. And I die, and so my wife has, at this point, no children. Now, she ha- she does have a friend that she's had since she was two years old, <laughs> okay? And uh, there are two peas in a pod and all that good stuff. And so would she appoint her friend as her financial agent? Well, if I were alive and well and could tell advisor, I would say, don't you dare. Not because of the friendship, 
but because she and her husband are having financial difficulties. And anytime you have that kind of situation, then there is incentive to take advantage of you financially if and when the opportunity arises. That's not to say that everybody would do that, but when people are in a financial pinch, that's when it's sort of like, oh, it won't hurt if I borrow this, I'll pay it back. And even with good intentions, it's still a crime, but even with good intentions, typically it never gets paid back because they're in financial hot water to begin with. So again, you have to be really careful. Now, what's the alternative? The alternative is if you get to a point where you're totally disabled and cannot manage your own money, the court will appoint someone to do it for you. Now, you might say, well, I don't like that idea. That sounds expensive. But here it is. I mean, all it means is that uh, that that, um, um, that you, the the folks that you want to receive your estate at your death may not get quite as much, but what you do get is court supervision of the agent, of the guardian. That's called a guardianship. Uh, So you have court supervision of the guardian to make sure that what's going on with your money is, in fact, what you would do or in your best interest. And, and, um, and, And typically the guardian is going to be bonded. So there's an insurance company. If there's any kind of mismanagement, uh, is liable and those kind of things. Now, in this particular case, um, my client wanted to, and this is not unusual, even though I, I, I'm not real partial to it. She wanted to leave everything to the SPCA and um, fine with me. I mean, whatever my client wants is what I'm going to uh, uh, do. Uh, it's just that I, I find in my, my practice that people that only have four-legged children uh, <laughs> tend to leave a substantial part of their estate to uh, the local SBA, SPCA or the national SPCA. And they're good organizations and they're good charities. However, they get the lion's share of charitable uh, donations at death and they probably need it less than, uh, truthfully, than a lot of other uh, charitable organizations for two-legged children. <laughs> so, it, um, it the, you know, there's there's a little conflict for me, but not for my clients. And if they want to leave it to the SPCA or other uh, animal uh, rights groups, that's perfectly fine with me. I just, it's the kind of thing where I'd like to see two-legged animals get. Uh, <laughs> gets part of that pie too, but that's up to my client. But the bottom line is, is that sometimes a guardianship is actually the best way a person can go, and that way you don't have to worry about being taken advantage of and your property being used in the most appropriate way possible for you. Yeah, that's a very good point, and you know, having that uh, that reassurance there that uh, someone is acting in your best interest, as as you said, that's uh, mm-hmm. that's the most important thing when it comes to that. Well, we'll take a quick break here, and we'll continue our conversation on estate planning. You're listening to Asset Protection today with Attorney Bill Alexander on News Radio 680 WPTF. You're 
listening to Asset Protection Today with Attorney Bill Alexander on News Radio 680 WPTF. Thank you so much for joining us on this Saturday morning. I've got Bill Alexander right here. I am Jason Kong, and we're talking about estate planning and uh, specific situations and interesting situations when it comes to uh, different family situations that you may have. And Bill, you uh, when we started the program, you said that uh, coincidentally you, you encountered three of these scenarios uh, in, in just the past week. And we've gone through one with, uh, I guess, a, a person with estranged children and how that may impact things. We had another person who basically had no family and, and no close friends. And now we, let's go to the third situation. Well, the third situation is actually a very, very common situation now, and that's blended families. Okay. So you're, you uh, survived a blended family. Right. Uh, and blended families are, are very common. I'll, I'll never forget uh, one of my children coming home uh, back in the days when they were in elementary school. This was dark, dark ages now uh, for us. But uh, it was like, well, Dad, you and Mom are the only parents uh, of all of our friends where there's not a step-parent or step-siblings involved. And I was going, I was totally shocked. <laughs> but the bottom line is uh, divorce and remarriage uh, or death and remarriage is a very, very common thing. And so um, uh, it, it's the kind of thing that when you have a blended family, um, if, if you want your family to, to continue to um, – uh, uh, be hospitable and good and not estranged and those kind of things, planning is really important because, truthfully, your children uh, have expectations. And when you look at remarriage, then oftentimes a remarriage uh uh, really screws up the apple cart, <laughs> if you will. It turns it over and tur- sometimes turns it upside down and can create estrangement uh, and resentment. Uh, and so in order to keep things together on a good um, playing field uh, for, the, for the entire family, it really does take thoughtful planning. So what's the first thing that folks should do if they're contemplating remarriage, particularly if they're children on both sides of the uh, marriage, which is very common? Um, first thing is a prenuptial or pre-marriage agreement may be the most important thing that you can do. Um, because Why do you do that? A pre-marriage agreement can take many shapes and forms, and both people need to have attorneys to represent them. It's not a situation where, well, we're all in agreement, and we all we should be able to go to one attorney and get an agreement done. It doesn't work that way. Uh, ethically, it doesn't work that way, and both people should know uh, the, all there is to know about a prenuptial agreement and what it does. But the bottom line is, at the end of the day, it should be done long before you actually say your wedding vows. In other words, you don't want to be signing an agreement a week or two before you get married, and you certainly don't want to be signing it after the invitations have gone out, if you send invitations. 
Um, so you want as much dis- distance between the actual marriage date and signing the pre-marriage contract as you possibly can. And uh, basically, it does require both people to divulge everything about their assets and liabilities. You know, I have this property and I have these debts, and it needs to be pretty accurate. Uh, so it's a matter of uh, putting it all on the table before the marriage, and that way if somebody wants to back out because of financial reasons, they certainly can. And it's generally not uh, – sometimes it's that people are scared of debt, so it's sort of like, well, let's not get married. Let's just live together, <laughs> you know, but it uh, – and that's not uncommon these days either. So – um, and, and sometimes a remarriage cuts you off from, like, for instance, alimony. It cuts you off from other uh, things like that. So sometimes people just don't even contemplate remarriage because of things like that. But, okay, so uh, a prenup, what's it for? Primarily, it is to protect your children. And it is also to protect you if your marriage doesn't work out. In other words, where you can uh, say that we're going to keep everything separate and you support yourself, I support myself. If our marriage breaks up, there is no alimony claim. In other words, uh, there can't be a, a, um, a petition for support from the other spouse. Uh, and uh, upon my death, I can leave my property to anybody I want and I have no obligation to leave anything to you as my spouse. I mean, that's what a prenup is for. Uh, and it's really important because if you don't have a prenup, your children will just assume that your new spouse is going to end up with everything one way or the other, and they're out. And that does not create a good situation uh, in your family with your children, and that's really sad when you see that happen. Uh, And, of course, a prenup doesn't mean you can't give anything or everything to your spouse, but the bottom line is the assumption is if you don't have a prenup, the new spouse is going to get everything. And then we've we've all heard of gold diggers, those who are out there to find a rich spouse to marry so that they can take all the money and then remarry again to somebody else that's even richer. <laughs> so uh, and and that is a concern, quite frankly, in a in a prenuptial agreement again, protects you. And so prenups are extremely important and and sh- it should be something that is always done. Now, I learned a new term uh, this m- morning. Um, and this is not uncommon either, and it's called a May-December wedding. And I was going, what is that? Well, for those of you like me who don't know, we had to look it up, you know, because when you don't know the definition of something, you have to look it up. And it's thought, we thought we knew what it was, but we found that we, we really didn't. A, a May-December wedding basically means one spouse is in the May of her life and the other spouse is in the winter of his life, typically, I mean, that would be 99% rule because in almost, not every case, but in almost every case, it's the husband who is, you know, 15 years older than the uh, 
than the wife. And so that's called a May-December wedding, which I thought was pretty funny. But <laughs> well, We learned something new today. But you think about what does that do as it relates to the children who do have at least some expectation that they're going to inherit from, from dad who's 15 years older than – and I've even seen, and you have too – marriages where the new spouse is virtually the same age and sometimes even younger than the children. So uh, that's a true May-December wedding, even more so. And then the children are going, well, we're never going to inherit a darn thing, (laughs) you see. And even if there is a trust in place where the spouse um, only has an income interest, and then at death it ends up going to uh, the children or grandchildren. But if the spouse is anywhere close to the age of the children, then uh, the bottom line is the children are, are thinking to themselves, "Well, we're just we're now screwed. We're not uh, we're not going to get any inheritance at all, or not a timely inheritance where it will help uh, me. Maybe it'll help my children, but not me." And so. Those expectations are really important as it relates to um, how the children will feel about the marriage because what you really would like is the fact that your children are happy that um, you're remarrying and that it's everybody continues to be one big happy family. But it's not going to happen unless you do some really good planning. The other thing, particularly with a May-December wedding, is that you probably not only should have a prenup, but you um, should probably plan to leave a substantial part of your estate to your children at your death, um, even if you are, in fact, providing something for your spouse uh, so that that they know that – um, you, you care about them as, as much uh, as it relates to your property and estate. Uh, now, obviously, if the two people getting married are both well-to-do and they keep everything separate, then it's really not an issue anyway. But it becomes a huge issue when the spouse uh, actually needs the support of uh, or has goes into the marriage with very little and the other Uh, spouse has a lot, then it becomes uh, a much more important decision is how you split things up. Truthfully, the only way to make that kind of planning work and work well for both families is a trust. You really cannot do the kind of planning you need with a will-based plan. A trust is really uh, what one needs to have a more sophisticated a more complex plan, if you will, for, distri- for distributing your estate upon your death. And that's, of course, was the solution that we had for the um, blended family. Yeah, and if you have an interesting family situation and maybe you need some advice, I want to encourage you to go to WGALaw.com. That's WGALaw.com. Schedule an appointment with Bill and just explain your situation and get some advice because estate planning is so important and it's it's very hard to wade through the waters if you have a, a complicated family situation. Again, WGALaw.com or you can call the office at 919 919- Two five six seven thousand nine one nine two five six seven thousand. A quick break and back. You're listening to Asset Protection Today with Attorney Bill Alexander on News Radio six eighty WPTF. 
Welcome back to Asset Protection Today with Attorney Bill Alexander on News Radio 680 WPTF. We are uh, just about out of time here, but Bill, you got a parting shot that you want to get out. Well, and this goes with blended families. Uh, sometimes the most difficult thing, the thing that creates the biggest problem, uh, if it's not planned out, is the distribution of your personal, your tangible property, the family heirlooms, the jewelry, things like that. Which most people think, what? Why would that be? But the truth is, that is meaningful to your children, and you really have to think through how to do that so that it's distributed the way you would like it distributed. Great advice. want to remind everyone to go to WGALaw.com if you want to register for Bill's free seminar on Wednesday, August 8th. We'll be talking a lot about that next week, so please join us then as well. You can also catch Bill tomorrow morning on the CW22 with his TV show Money Secrets at 8 a.m., and you can check out his book on Amazon, Money Secrets, by the same name there with Bill and Mike. we got to get out of here. Thank you so much for listening to Asset Protection Today with Attorney Bill Alexander on News Radio 680 WPT. Have a great weekend.